Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Christ. Christ. So, uh, thank you, Lydia. Appreciate that. We are uh, hitting the home stretch now in our uh, series that we've been calling A Love Supreme. It's, it's a, a walk through the various uh, anchor doctrines, that's what we're calling them, anchor doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. This, is, uh, this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and uh, today I want to talk about uh, the fifth anchor in, or I'm sorry, the fourth anchor in the five doctrines of grace. And what I want to do is start by going directly for your intellect, uh, by referring to a scene from Dumb and Dumber, uh, which is one of my favorite films. So, uh, Jim Carrey plays a character named Lloyd Christmas. I'm not sure if he's dumb or dumber, uh, but Lloyd develops a crush on a woman named Mary Swanson, and uh, he shows up at her door, and he asks her the question, what do you think the chances are of a girl like you and a guy like me ending up together? Mary answers, not good. Lloyd says, you mean not good like one out of a hundred? Mary responds, I'd say more like one out of a million. And then Lloyd gets this big smile on his face and he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Maybe you've been there where the person that you were truly smitten with seemed to be ignoring you and somebody that you're not smitten with at all is chasing after you. Maybe you've been there where, you know, there's this person who's so unattractive to you that you would say there's less than one in a million of a chance that you would end up falling in love with them. And so, what we're coming to today in the Bible is a teaching that we find from the beginning to the end of Scripture, and that is this, that in our born natural state, the odds for us falling in love with and ending up with Jesus are zero in a million. There's a pessimistic picture that our Scripture today presents of the natural human heart with respect to its posture toward God, it does not say that we are sick. It says that we are dead spiritually, dead in transgression and sin. It's this 
truth that we covered a few weeks ago that we could call spiritual inability. Left on our own, Jesus says in John 6, no one can, Jesus says. No one has the power to. No one is able to. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only way that we will ever fall in love with God is, the, is if we discover that He has first loved us. But Jesus also says in the same passage in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come. If you are a Christian, if you identify as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, at some point along the way, a, a switch has occurred, a shift in attraction, a shift in desire has occurred for you. And, and, and that shift has created a new set of odds. You've gone from zero in a million to a million in a million chance of ending up with Jesus. This doctrine that historically has been referred to as irresistible grace is probably better referred to as effectual calling because there are some, there are many actually, who do resist the grace of God. But if we look at it in terms of what the Westminster theologians call effectual calling, it talks about the effectiveness of God in reaching the hearts of those that He's pursuing for romance. If God is determined to win your heart, He will. If God is determined to win your heart, He always will win your heart. He has a 100% success rate in this endeavor. You see, we're born with a spell on our hearts, and that spell compels us to resist grace, to resist that which is pure and excellent and lovely and praiseworthy, to resist God and to move toward independence. But when God kisses us with His grace, His grace becomes irresistible. So, two points today. Because it's Thanksgiving, I'm going to spare you a, one of the three points so you can be thankful. <laughs> Point one, pessimism about our human condition. This is an invitation to be pessimistic about the human condition. It's also an invitation, secondly, of an, uh, toward an optimism about what God has done and what God can do. So, first of all, the pessimism. Apart from God, all we can do, all we have the ability to do, even on our best days, is resist Him. You know, Jesus put it this way, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the beloved apostle, who knows what he's talking about, is one who has a keen memory of his own deadness to God as a rabbi. Just like Luther was dead to God for many years as a monk, the apostle Paul was dead to God as a rabbi. And he says this about himself and all of us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, he includes himself there, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body or the flesh and the mind. By nature, we were all objects of wrath. 
You know, John Stott, uh, the, the uh, now deceased uh, Anglican minister and prolific author about spiritual things, said this, we need to be clear that this here in Ephesians, this is a description of everybody. It's a description of the universal human condition. Stott goes on to write, one has the vigorous body of an athlete, another has the lively mind of a scholar, and a third, the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed. We must and do say this very thing. They have no life. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ, deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit, no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards Him, no longing for fellowship with Him and with His people. They are as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. It is a living death, and those who live it are dead even while they are still living." So, one of the commentaries I was exploring pointed out very insightfully that there are degrees of sickness. If you have an inoperable cancer, you are very sick. If you have a cold, you're a little bit sick. Sickness comes in degrees. You can either be sort of sick, medium sick, or very sick, but there's only one kind of dead. Whether, you're, whether the picture of your death is that of a clean and preppy corpse or a grungy, stinky corpse, dead is dead. I mean, you think about it. We, sometimes, you guys, any of you guys have those uh, hornets that, that seem like they're flying around drunk? in your house, and they just fall to the ground. I don't really know what the dynamic is. Some of you are nodding, and some of you are like, what are you talking about? Um, in any event, we have drunk hornets. Typically, every fall, we'll see them, and they're kind of flying around, and I'm not sure what puts them in that condition, but eventually, they will fall on the ground, and it'll look like a perfectly intact hornet. And then you put right next to it a, a hornet that you've squashed with a fly swatter or your foot. One of them is very intact, dead, and the other is squishy dead, but both are in the same state. Both are dead. Neither has life in it. This gets, this teaching gets to the biblical idea that even our good deeds can be motivated, our generosity, our prayer life, the sermons that some of us get to preach, can be motivated by what smells like rigor mortis to the nostrils of God. Because there's a clean and preppy kind of dead as well as there's a grungy, stinky kind of dead. Charles Spurgeon, to illustrate this, this reality, once told a story about a gardener who discovered an enormous carrot, an enormous, beautiful, crisp carrot in his garden, and he brings it to the king, and he says, O king, I give you this, my very best carrot, as a token of my love for you. And the king says to the gardener, thank you. 
I'm going to give you this entire field over here so that you can grow more and more beautiful, delicious carrots. And then a horse breeder overheard the conversation between the king and the gardener, and he got an idea. And what he did was he picked his best horse out, and and he brought it to the king, and he says, King, I offer you this horse as a token of my love for you. And then the king said, thank you. You can now go on your way. And the man who offered the horse said, wait, I'm confused because I, I just overheard you giving a whole field to the gardener who gave you a carrot, and now I give you one of my best horses, and you're telling me to go away. To which the king responded, the gardener gave the carrot to me, but you gave the horse to yourself. Nietzsche referred to this as the will to power disguised as altruism or generosity, where you give, Nietzsche says, to the needy, not because you're moved with compassion toward the needy, but rather because the feeling of being needed gives you a sense of power over the person that you're giving to, or the generosity which you will typically tell somebody else about. Maybe you'll give at a level that will get you on a donor list that's public. It gives you some sort of perceived moral leverage or moral superiority over the people around you. You know, we can do the right things for all the wrong reasons. Isaiah the prophet referred to it in this way. He says, even our best deeds can can be in the nostrils of God like filthy rags. There is a preppy, put-together form of dead. Paul wrote about it in Philippians. They're actually, Paul says, they're actually people who preach sermons. They're actually preachers who preach out of a spirit of rivalry and competition. Can you imagine that in Nashville, Tennessee? Rivalry and competition between churches and between preachers and pastors? Sermon on the Mount, we did a whole long series on the Sermon on the Mount, inviting Jesus to do surgery on our hearts. And one of the ways that Jesus did surgery on us was reminding us that sometimes we can pray and, and, and do charitable giving and, and, and religious devotion merely to be seen by others and get applause from people with no thought of God. There's a pretty version of dead and there's a squashed and stinky version, but dead is dead. That's the human condition unaided by God, dead in transgression and sin. But that's the pessimism part, but but then there's the optimism part. Optimism about what God has done and can do in light of that which we are legitimately pessimistic about in ourselves. Verse 4, these beautiful words, but God got a group of men that I meet with. We call our group Detheos, which is the Greek, the Greek terminology for but God. Two hopeful words, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. 
He raised us up, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, and now we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a change of nature. Paul talks about it in this way to the Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Your nature, your disposition, your inclination, your attractions, your, your, your primary loves, your primary hatreds have switched. You've been reoriented from the inside out. There's this new romance that has become to you irresistible. And the sign, the chief sign of new life, James Montgomery Boyce once said, is that boring grace becomes amazing grace. Boring grace becomes amazing grace. The grace that we once resisted now becomes irresistible to us. The sin that we couldn't resist, it now looks like, or at least it's starting to look like, insanity to us. You know, Luther, like I said a few minutes ago, had this experience. He spent many years serving as a faithful, dutiful monk, and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this next week when I talk about the assurance of salvation that the gospel provides. But he lived his life in guilt and despair because he never felt like his confessions were keeping up with his transgressions and sins. He always felt behind. And then somebody asked him once, do you love God? And he says, love God? I, I hate Him. But then after he was awakened to grace through his reading of Romans chapter 1, he would say these words, Martin Luther would, thereupon I felt myself reborn and to have gone through open doors to paradise. The whole Scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. What's so amazing about grace is, is that it's a gift. I mean, we're entering into the giving season, right? But before we can enter into to a posture of giving, we have to first know what it means to live in a posture of receiving. By grace you have been saved through faith. Grace or favor from God is a gift of God so that no one can boast, so that no one can get leverage, so that no one can, can manipulate, you know, the will to power through self-centered generosity and altruism. No one boasts because everything's a gift now. But it does beg the question, why did God choose to love us? And, and, and the clear answer from the text is not because of any merit in us, or, or like Paul says elsewhere, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. There's this compassion that God had on us. He loves us simply because He loves us. That's the reason why He loves us, because He loves us. But why does He love us? Well, because He loves us. While we were dead, while we were decomposing, while God could smell the atrophy and the, the rigor mortis, the stench of transgression and sin, when we were in our least attractive state, with nothing to present to Him but death, 
while we were still sinners. The Scriptures say that is the moment when Christ died for us. Another way of putting it is there was nothing about us that Jesus should desire us. The one and only reason for His pursuit, again, it's in verse 4, was because of the great love with which He loved us. So, our family, I'm hoping not to do any spoilers right now, but our family went and watched this beautiful movie last night called Wonder. And Wonder is based on a book about a young boy, fifth grade boy named August or Augie Pullman, and he was born with, with a disfigured, a severely disfigured face. And his whole life was really essentially about navigating, uh, you know, the, the, the burden that had been placed upon him to, to bear this severely disfigured face. And so he enters school, he leaves the homeschool, the safety of the homeschooling environment, and goes into uh, a school with other kids in fifth grade, and he gets ridiculed and made fun of and bullied mercilessly because of how disfigured his face was. He would get compared to Freddy Krueger, and, and there were kids who would say, if I were that ugly, I would kill myself. Just bullied to the core, had his heart crushed. And he goes home, and he, he, he gets really upset with his mom and says, Mom, I don't ever want to go back there again. I'm hideous, I'm ugly, and everybody knows it. I'm a freak. And his mom says, don't talk about yourself like that. You are not ugly. You're not hideous. You are not a freak. And he says, well, you have to say that because you're my mom. And she says, it's precisely because I'm your mom that I can say these things because I know you better than anybody else knows you. In the end, even the bullies come to see in August what his mom did. And the theme of his life then becomes the theme of the film. When given the choice between being kind and being right, choose kind every time. And then Augie's own reflection at the end, everybody, even the bullies, everybody is fighting a hard-hidden battle. But Jesus sees it all. Jesus looks at us in the same way that the mother looked at the young Augie in the film. They don't know you like I know you. And apparently right now you don't know you like I know you. I have relinquished everything my goals, my dreams, my ambitions, my time, my energy for you because I know you. I know you better than even you know yourself. In the same way, Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, who's robbed people blind as a chief tax collector for many years, and his surprising response to Zacchaeus is this, I don't see hideousness in you. I don't see a crook. I see someone with potential for hospitality and generosity. I see somebody who has something to offer. You're not just someone who takes. I'm coming to your house today. 
Or the promiscuous woman in Luke chapter 7 who'd been written off by the religious community. He looks at her and essentially says, I don't see a whore. I don't see a woman who's constantly chasing the satisfaction of her libido. I see someone who's thirsty for love. I see someone who, when her need and thirst for love is quenched, will become one of the most marvelously, magnificently loving human beings. For those who know that they've been loved much, love much, they don't know you, Jesus says, like I know you. They don't know the hard battle that has driven you to be what you've been. They also don't know your future. They don't know that you are my workmanship, or the literal Greek term is poema. We get our word poem or poetry from this word. They don't know that you're my poem. See, this is how Jesus falls in love with us. He looks at us in our disfigured state, and He falls in love with us based on what He knows our future to be. He's preparing us to be a beautiful, lovely bride. For Jesus, falling in love means envisioning our future self. That's what grace means. Grace means that damaged and disfigured doesn't mean done. It means the opposite. His compassion moves him in the same way that the mother's compassion moves her in that film. And then we say, but there's my disfigurement, there's my anger, there's my selfishness, there's my greed, there's my guilt. You heard Jeremy singing that Rich Mullins song. We're not as strong as we think we are. We're frail, choking on the fumes of selfish rage, our hells and our heavens so few inches apart. We must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. To which Jesus responds, is that all you got? Is that all you've got? Yeah, you're frail, but you're also fearfully and wonderfully made, and you're fearfully and wonderfully in the making as well. You are my poema. You are my artwork. Don't you dare talk about yourself like that. Don't you dare let the bullies outside of you or the bully inside of you define you by your disfigurement. Don't you dare. I see you, and I know you better than they know you and better than you know you. I know that you're in a hard battle, and, 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 and that hard battle drives so many of your dysfunctions. I know this about you, and I'm compassionate toward that. I know also your redeemed potential. You see, His grace is irresistible. How, we, how do we know we've been awakened by it? We know we've been awakened by it, first and foremost, that grace ceases to be boring, and it starts to assume this amazing quality for us over time. Another sign is this. You gradually find yourself on a different path than the one upon which you used to walk. Before, verse 2, you walked in the ways of the world. After, verse 10, now, having been awakened by the but God, you walk in good works, which God prepared beforehand. You are His workmanship. You are His poetry. In other words, grace always says to us, come as you are, but it never invites us to stay there. It never invites us just to sit in the courtroom rehashing our guilt and our verdict over and over and over again. 
I'm so bad. Thank you for forgiveness. I'm so bad. Wretched man that I am. Woe is me. Thank you for grace. Woe is me. Thank you for… No. He says there are two sides of the cross. There's the guilt and shame side. That's been dealt with. There's the disfigurement side that you've been awakened to. And the redemption side that's led you to the other side of the cross, which is resurrection. Now it's time for you to go out and live, you who were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now you are poema, your poetry. Love God, I hate Him has been transformed to, oh, how I love your law. Your wish is my command. I love for you to tell me what to think and how to feel and what to do. I love it. There are two sides to the cross. There's the before and after. And Jesus says, you're on the after side of the cross. You're a glory self. Zacchaeus, you are no longer defined by your greed. You're now defined by your generosity. How about that? Promiscuous woman, you are no longer defined by your prostitution. You are now defined by a pure love that would redeem the tools of your trade. Your hair, your perfume, your lips now being leveraged and used as resources with which to love instead of resources with which to abuse and exploit and objectify even yourself. You know, for others, maybe we're not Zacchaeus, maybe we're not the promiscuous woman. For others, this will mean growing toward a greater kindness growing toward being the kinds of people who give the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the worst, who are defined by gratitude instead of entitlement, who tell more truth and fewer truths and fewer lies, who keep their commitments and their covenants. You see, because you have been loved much, by the disfigured son, the one who was despised and rejected, the one about whom it says there was nothing about him that would attract us to him, the one that compelled us because he was so ugly to respond to him as bullies. We looked at him. And we despised Him, but now we look at Him, and we love Him. And the world may look at us and say, what? You would give up all that you have for Him? To which we, in our sanity, living on the liberated side of the cross, would simply and humbly say, you don't know Him like I do but would you like to? Let's pray. As the poet John Donne once put to words, Lord, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever be chaste, except you ravish me. Lord, would you please, for each and every one of us, transform that which we have treated as boring grace into amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. 
was blind, but now I see. And now you invite us, Lord, into an immediate application of this great and beautiful and glorious truth. You have given us a new appetite, and you've welcomed us to fill it around a table with a body and with blood. You've transformed the palate of our souls so that we have taste for your fine wine. Consecrate and set apart these elements, this bread and this cup, to nourish us spiritually, even as bread and wine nourish us physically. Father, may we be those who love much because we have been loved much by the disfigured Son, in whose name we pray, even Jesus. Amen.